Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hello everyone, today you've got Andrew and Daphne from Generation to Generation, and our guests are David Bosky and Michael Mistretta. Um, for people that don't know who you are, can you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do? Yeah, well, thank, thank you for having us, Andrew and Daphne. And it's been great to, I think we've known each other now for four or five years and just seeing our relationship uh, blossom and bring when you brought students to Israel and just uh, your friendship has meant the world to us. And so uh, my name is Michael. I live uh, in, in Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem now, actually, in the Judean Hills. And uh, I have the privilege of leading a ministry called FIRM, stands for Fellowship of Israel-Related Ministries. And really, we know a lot of people want to get involved in Israel in a gospel-centered way, but they don't know where to start or who to trust. And that's why we, we have a network of about 65 different ministries that our heart is to empower local ministries in the land uh, to transform Israel in the name of uh, Yeshua. And so we have ministries all across the land that are doing that. We're, we're here to strengthen, unite, equip, resource them, and just hold up their arms as they um, reach our nation and our people. And so uh, just a privilege to be with you all today. Yeah, same as well. It's an honor to be with you, Daphne and Andrew. Um, my name is David Bosky. And I recently uh, came on staff with FIRM, so I am uh, new to the FIRM family, but very excited about what God's doing through this ministry. Um, I was born and raised in Israel, so this has been my home for most of my life. I also live in Jerusalem, and um, for the past couple of years, I've been serving uh, on staff at a local Messianic congregation in Jerusalem, which was a, a huge honor and a great pleasure. And, um, and now I'm excited to see what might, God might want to do uh, through firm and to expand the influence and impact that um, they can possibly have here in the land. I know that firm has a lot of really good resources, uh, videos that you're putting out for people that want to find out more about you. And I recommend they do. Where can they do that? Well, you can always go to our website, firm.org.il. Um, and under the learn section, there's a lot of resources. We just uh, you know, coming through the high hall, the Jewish high holidays have a bunch of new videos and blogs that have gone out in addition to stories from local ministries of what God's doing here today. But if, if you're new to the Israel thing, uh, we're also launching a new video series called Israel U, five minute videos to help you understand the Bible and grow in your faith using Israel as a lens. So right now people can't come into the country. We want to help bring Israel to you. So you can go to Israel U, the letter U dot org. Uh, israelu.org and watch the first three pilot episodes and we hope to have uh, season one coming in the next few months so i'll put that information in the description for people that want to to go there go to the description and i'll put the links for you to go to yeah i've watched Perfect. a couple seeing you sitting out in the desert and awesome just a bit frustrating because we can't sit with you but the day will come yes. when we do with the this yes. um last this year is the first time we've had to cancel a trip to israel uh in like 14 years i think like so we're like oh this is so frustrating and we travel so much like i was i was thinking today actually i was looking online at um at an article about them discontinuing i think it's ba discontinuing using the boeing 747 and i started to miss airplane food <laughs> Like, I miss that terrible yeah, you know, food. You know you, you know you haven't traveled in a long time when you miss airplane food. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. Um, 
So people are waking up. I think the church is beginning to wake up to the whole issue of eschatology, uh, end times. And people are saying, where are we? In this? And it's kind of almost new to many people. But it isn't new, is it? I mean, can you take us back biblically as to how did all this start or did it start or where is it? I mean, do we start in Matthew 24 or do we go forwards to Revelation? How, how can we begin to navigate this? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start by just saying I think sometimes uh, eschatology or the study of the end times can be uh, conf confusing and maybe feel convoluted, especially um, if you were to start with without having the proper grounding of, of where um, where things really begin with. And I think a lot of that be begins in the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, um, and an understanding of even 2000 years ago when Jesus came for the first time, what was the end times eschatology of the Messiah's coming uh, in those days. And so that's something um, that I'm really glad David's with us because I hope we're able to go through today, just talk through what does it look like for the Messiah's return? Let's look at the prophecies in a way that is not, we're not talking about eschatology in, in, a, in a weird way. We're not trying to predict the date, but as, as you so uh, uh, tactfully do with this series, we want to know the times and the seasons and be aware. We don't want to be ignorant. We want to search the scriptures and uh, know um, what is coming and know what to look for. And so we hope we're going to be able to unpack some of that today. And, and I'm really, I'm really, really excited to hear, you know, I have looked for the return of Jesus. I can't remember a day of my life almost when I wasn't looking for him and, and all sorts of weird theology, which was okay then because that's all we knew. Um, but Daniel talks about increased revelation as the time gets near. So I'm excited to hear you, David, and you, Michael, and all ears open for the new things that we can hear in this time and in this season. Yeah, well, you know, I'll just piggyback off of what Michael was just saying there. You know, when I when I pick up the scriptures and I try to understand what God is conveying, the, fir the first thing I have to acknowledge is that the book that's in my hand is his communication to me so that I can both understand who he is and what he wants me to know about what his plans are for humanity. So it's really, I think a lot of times it, it can appear to be a book that's difficult to digest if you uh, if you take it in little bites here and there, but if in order to understand it, I think we have to know, first of all, that God wants us to know. He had, he has, he's invested this book in our hands so that we can be aware, uh, not, not to be overly dogmatic, but more to be uh, vigilant. I mean, it, it so ties into Daphne, what you were saying about the, the first uh, Chronicles passage about being aware of the times. This is literally the reason he's given us this book to know him and to be able to discern what he's going to be doing in the world. We're not meant to sit here and question and wonder, we're meant to be able to, in a sense, pick up the, pick up our newspapers and to view what we read through the lens of scripture and for it to make sense and for us to be able to piece it together because we know the word and that gives us clarity for how we view what's going on. Hmm. Well, can you start us on that journey? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be honored and, and I, I love discussion so anyone can cut yeah, in we'll, and butt we'll, in. We'll, as you, we'll as, be there. Okay. You know, I think for me, uh, I was able to go to a really good Bible school in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute, and I, I was able to glean many things from the school. One of the probably the most valuable tools that I was given is I was given the ability to, in a sense, view scripture as an entire unit, as one story that's being written, laid out, 
And so for me to understand any given part of scripture, I do have to understand the whole and I have to understand it in the way that God laid it out in how he inspired the scriptures and the order that it's in, because it's like, it's like any good story. You don't, you don't start a movie in the middle of the movie. You have to start at the beginning to see the flow of what's being conveyed, the imagery that's being conveyed, the symbols that God uses and how he expects the track. So the way I really like to, to view scripture is I, I take it in kind of the blueprints that God's laid, laid out through the different covenants that he has made with mankind, and I would say even more specifically through the, with the people of Israel. And by tracking those covenants, we begin to see God's character revealed, how he intends to bring about redemption for the world by these relationship moments that he makes with his people. This reveals his character and his plan for how he intends to culminate human history, everything about redemption. And so to understand his paradigm of history, we have to see how he functions through the covenants that he makes with mankind to understand, to, for me to be able to understand what's going on today, this this happens through the covenant that he makes with Noah and through Abraham, probably Abraham being one of the key covenants that he makes because it ends up becoming a catalyst for so many of the other ones that he intends to reverse what happened in the garden. When man sinned, sin comes into the world, curse comes into the world, and God says, I'm going to actually begin to bring blessing back into the world, and I want you to follow this guy named Abraham because through him, as you, as, you, as you follow his legacy and his genealogy, I'm going to show you how I'm going to bring blessing back into the world. And this is what he says uh, in Genesis 12. talks about um, there's going to be a specific people. They're going to be in a specific place. They're going to be a blessing to the world. And through this man, I'm going to bring blessing to everybody. And everything in scripture is, an, is, is, is being unfolded out of that promise. And obviously, I, I could take you through each one. Um, so if at any point you want me to stop, I'll stop, but I could keep going. Well, uh, well David, let's, let's start by talking maybe about, you know, the, the, the coming of Messiah, the event itself, hmm. and some of the scriptures that um, unpack that. I don't know if you want to start with Zechariah or the book of Joel. Sure. Well, again, if we're looking at, if we're looking at the, the entire purpose of Yeshua coming is to be this final blessing to all of humanity. And like you said, Daphne, I mean, it, it, I think what you said about you've been waiting and waiting and looking and looking for the coming of Yeshua, uh, Yeshua being the yeah. uh, Hebrew way of saying Jesus. There are two passages in the prophets that are probably the clearest depiction of Yeshua's physical return to the earth. And they're really, really important. And I think for us to really appreciate this moment that's going to come, we have to see what's going on in the context of these two passages. Um, we could go to them. Would you, you guys want to go to those two passages and we'll start looking at what they say? Yep. Sounds good. Yep, that would look good. Okay, so uh, like I said, two of the clearest passages about Yeshua's physical, the physical return of God to planet Earth. What's going on? What's the context of these two passages? And what is the specific moment that triggers the heart of God to say that enough is enough? I am now coming back. I am, I am invading into the space of, of, of humankind, and I'm going to intervene. What is that thing that happens that so stirs him up that he says, I have to come back now? So if, if your listeners or anyone wants to open up in Joel chapter 3, um, this, is, this is one. The other one is in Zechariah 14. But it says in Joel chapter 3, it talks about, uh, God says, for behold, in those days and at that time, and a lot of times when things like that are being said, he's talking about the end times. In those days and at that time, God says, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, so I'm bringing my people back to this place. I'm restoring them to their, to their original place. 
He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to a place called the Valley of Yehoshaphat. And so God says, I'm going to bring all the nations together, and I'm going to bring it to this place called the Valley of Yehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat is a Hebrew word, which means Yehovah or God judges. So this is the valley where God is going to enter into judgment to the nations. So he's coming back to judge the nations. Why? He says, I will enter into judgment with them, that is with the nations, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they, that is the nations, have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So this is an extremely politically charged passage, very politically incorrect, but very much at the core of God's heart. So when God says, go, this, this is why understanding the covenants is so crucial, because God says, I gave this land to my people. I intend them to be a blessing to the world in this place. And the nations coming against that core covenant, God says, no, this is my land, my people. I've given them this place And for you to come against my plans to bless the world, no one is going to thwart that plan. So all the nations that come against Israel and God's plan, God says, this is what triggers my return, that you've scattered my people and that you've divided up my land. Well, you know, as um, you you said several things, I'm like, my brain is jumping in all directions, but I just want to pick up a couple of them. You said about getting the newspaper and and seeing it through the biblical lens, which is something we have been saying for many years, but and bringing God's people back, bringing Jewish people back to the land. And I can remember going back. I have two older girls sitting them down as the um the as the Jewish people become started to come out the lands of the north, Sweden started to get on board and that. And I sat them down with the newspaper and I said to them, look, you are seeing prophecy being fulfilled. And I think that's so important to bring the two together or you miss the moment. And, and I just remember that moment with them as a, as a, a real treasure. And mm. you said they're so politically... Um, it's so politically charged. It, it mm-hmm. is that integration of the prophetic and, and what's happening today that I think often gets separated and people yeah. get confused and lose their way because they're in one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was funny because I think uh, if I remember this correctly, one of the one of the books that was so influential in my father's life that ended up uh, bringing him to faith was a book called Late Great Planet Earth by a guy named Hal Lindsey. It was an extremely popular book back in the day. And I think in that book, he talks about the coming, the return of the Jewish people to their land is one of the most monumental events in the past 2,000 years because of what it means for God's plan of redemption for the world. So it, it ties in exactly with what you're saying, Daphne. But do carry on uh, in Jehoshaphat. I jumped well, you out well, 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 and I just want to even add to that. I think, you know, it's easy to read this and you can read this from a political lens like, oh, it's God taking political sides, and that's not that's not at all where it's coming from. It's important to understand the reason why he takes this so seriously. And I think this comes back to where David started, which is uh, God is a covenant-keeping God. And if we don't understand the covenants, if we don't understand his covenant with Abraham, then maybe the actions of the end times might seem, that we're reading here, might seem random, but it's not random. It's very intentional. God being a covenant-keeping God, being faithful to his promises, uh, even when we're faithless as a people, as individuals, God being faithful um, to his covenants. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I obviously, I, I, I've, I think, I feel like I've seen this so much in the body where uh, it can happen when you take, uh, there's that famous saying that uh, a text without a context is a pretext. Mm. And I think that that's happened so often in so many different streams 
of many religions where you take one verse from one passage and you make that your theology. And if you don't see that in the, through the lens of the entire scriptures, you're, you're gonna, at some point you're gonna get tripped up. You're gonna, it, it becomes more of a cultic thing than it does become a biblical thing. So I, obviously what yeah, you said Michael, is, is right on. Okay, so David, we have, you know, the, the judgment of the nations based on the treatment of the Jewish people, based on the dividing up of the land. Um, what are some other um, prerequisites, if you would, or, or, or things or signs that we can see leading up to the return of Messiah? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I think uh, it might be good to also go to that other passage that you referenced, Michael, uh, the other clear passage of Yeshua's physical return to earth. Uh, it's from Zechariah chapter 14, where he says, it's a very similar depiction. It's, it's the same depiction by a different prophet, contemporaneous prophet, where he's talking about the same thing that's going to happen, about the day is going to come when he's going to gather all the nations and says in Zechariah 14, I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. He talks about the city being taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. It's a very graphic, difficult time for the people living here. And talks about half the city going into exile. In order, of course, in order for any of these things to be the case, like we just talked about, Israel has to be here, right? The Jewish people have to be in their land for any of these things, which is why this was such a monumental thing in history to see the Jewish people coming back. Like, well, listen, none of these things about eschatology, about Yeshua's return, about the end of the world can happen until the people are here. So even the ingathering of Jewish people to their land is setting the stage for these things to happen. So this is why this was so monumental in human history. But it talks about it, uh, going forward in Zechariah 14, it says that God's going to go out and fight against these nations as he does on the day of battle. And it says that his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, which does, it lies. In between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem, there's a valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Kidron Valley. So if any of the listeners end up coming to Israel, you can go to where this place is going to be. You can you can kind of see the, 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 the chessboard being set up. You can see where this is going to actually happen. And it talks about Yeshua or God, it says, coming back and landing on the Mount of Olives and being split in half. But it's the same, it's the same things that are triggering, the same things it says about the city going to exile, about people being cut off, about people fighting against Israel. This is what triggers God's heart. So it's not, I, I, it, it saddens me when people look at Israel as only kind of a, a chess piece in this game and not, no, this is so close to the heart of God. So much so that you would you would think, well, you know, when, when the gospel goes to the four corners of the earth and that's when he comes back. Yes, these things are setting the stage, but the specific moment that he says, I need to intervene on behalf of my people, it's when people begin to put their finger in the apple of God's eye. So as you see Israel coming back, as you see them in their land, waiting for the day when they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, understand this is the, this is the culmination of what, what is going to trigger Yeshua to say, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be there for my people. These are my chosen people, and I care so much about them because through them, blessing is going to come to the world. Mm. Yeah. David, I think that's so good. And I, I just know for me, I didn't grow up in Israel. Uh, I grew up in the church and um, just probably had never seen it th this way. I knew, uh, again, that the Jewish people had some sort of significance, but it felt like a maybe a peripheral significance towards the end times, like, okay, well, this is just an unnecessary thing. It's not central to the heart of God. And now that we've kind of framed the conversation with this passage from Joel uh, 3 and then Zechariah 14, I'd love to jump ahead to the New Testament 
uh, to Matthew 25. And I think this is a passage that many people are familiar with. I was familiar with it growing up, uh, but but I'd never seen it through the lens of the Bible, the, the Bible starting the book of Genesis through the lens of the covenants. And so can you help break down this, this, this judgment where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats? And, and what does he actually mean when he's talking about uh, the least of these, my brothers? For sure, for sure. I'm sure that um, probably what I'm about to say is going to be a little different than what people might have uh, studied if they've studied it, but um, I'm happy to, to share what I feel like God is saying through this, through this passage. Um, so Matthew 25, it's actually in the context of Matthew 24 and 25, which is called uh, the Olivet Discourse. It's, it's, this, it's the longest sermon that Yeshua gives throughout scripture. It's two chapters where he is basically approached by his disciples and they ask Yeshua, like, okay, we understand that the end is going to come. How can we discern it? Which I think is a question that so many believers are asking, have been asking for 2,000 years. How can we discern and be ready for when you come back? And so Yeshua doesn't say, no, 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 you know, just, you know, be, be faithful, do good things. And at some point down the road, it'll become clear. It's like, no, I'm actually going to give you, I'm going to give you the tools to, to be able to discern when this is happening. And, um, so they're asking, what's the sign of the end of the age? And he starts to go into a very uh, important passage in Matthew 24. And then he goes to Matthew 25, and he gives these three parables uh, about the virgins with their oil. He talks about the talents, and he talks about the sheep and the goats. And these are all things of don't fall asleep, okay? Don't waste the time that you have. Make sure you have oil in your lamps. Make sure you don't waste the talents that I've given you. Cherish the time that you've been given because the time is short. And then he gets to the end of Matthew 25 with this very, very famous uh, parable about sheep and the goats. And I think most often it's, it's interpreted one way, but I really think if you look at it in the context of the scriptures in their entirety, it gives a slightly different picture about what he's saying here. So if you want to go with me, Matthew 25, I think it's starting in verse 31, it talks about, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. You're thinking, what is, what is this talking about? What, what, is this an isolated depiction of when the Son of Man returns? Well, obviously it's not, because it's exactly what it says in Joel where it talks about God's going to gather all the nations of the earth to Jerusalem, and he's going to judge them. He's going to differentiate between them based on how they've acted. So if we see Matthew 25 in the context of the entire scriptures, it perfectly aligns with what we see in Joel 3 and Zechariah 14. So if that's the context of this, of this parable, then it's going to appear very differently because we have him separating all nations based on what? based on how they treated specific people, right? He says the, in, in verse 34, it says, then the king will say to those on his right, those are the good ones, the sheep. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He talks about how I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and I was a stranger and I was naked and you clothed me and you visited me and I was in, it, you took care of me so well. And, the, and these righteous ones respond. It's kind of an interesting thing that they respond to. They say, when did we do that? When did we feed you and clothe you and visit you? And he says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, 
if we just take off our theological hats and we think of ourselves as believers, as, as Christians or Messianics or whatever you want to call yourself, and you live your life and you take care of people as a believer, you're taking care of orphans and you're taking care of widows and you're taking care of the sick and you're taking care of anyone who might need you. We have this understanding, this God-given understanding that we are doing this as unto the Lord. It's not a, it's not a stretch. We get it. We get that we're serving these people in the sense that we're being obedient to God. So if these righteous are believers, why would they say, wait, when did we do this? We don't understand how helping the needy was helping you. As a believer, I totally get that. We can only understand their reaction to the king by saying, oh, maybe these, the least of these, my brothers, going back to Joel 3, is saying in the sense that you blessed and took care and clothed and fed my brothers, my physical brothers, the Jewish people, you were doing it to me because they are my physical family. Same thing goes for the goats. You didn't do these things. It was like you weren't doing them to me. Like, when did we not do these things? Well, these are my brothers. These are my physical brothers. And because they're so precious to me, Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, if you curse them, you're going to get cursed. If you bless them, you're going to get blessed. These are my family. And the way you treat them is going to be an indication of whether you align with me in all that I am and all that I've said and all that I'm going to do. This is going to be the litmus test of how you've treated my people. So I, I think that, that as we relate to the Jewish people, as we care for them, we understand that they are God's family. They are his brothers. And the way we treat them is going to have a huge huge repercussions, just like it says in Joel 3 and Zechariah 14. The way you treat Israel is going to affect how God comes. And just because he loves them, and, he, and again, it has to be about him blessing the world through these people. If you destroy the people, this is what's been going on for thousands of years, different nations are rising to destroy this people because the enemy doesn't want God to bless the world. And, he, and God connected himself. He, he covenanted himself with these people and the enemy knows if I can destroy these people, if I can turn the world, even the church against them, how is God ever going to bless the world? How is the blessing going to come? It can't come. And so that's why there's been such a, a, a violent, intentful attack against Jewish people, because the enemy doesn't want God to be able to bless the world through his people. You, as, wow. we, um, as we travel, we often talk to people about this. And one of the questions we get is, when he talks about judging the nations based on how they treated Israel, is that judging them based off of governments' decisions as to whether or not they support or not? Will I as an individual be judged based off what my government decides? Is it me judged as an individual based off my individual decisions that to support or not support Israel? How would you respond to that? You want me to take a stab at that or do you want to, do you want to tackle that you one? Go, you go for it, David. <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a it's a very good question, um, and I would say that obviously there are biblical standards, moral standards that we are held to as believers, and I think that no one should ever stand for any policy or any position that would go against the Word of God. That's on one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin is, I would always be wary. Because if I read through the scriptures, if I read through the Tanakh, through the Hebrew scriptures, even if I look, for example, if you go through the book of Ezekiel, it's a really amazing book, 
again, extremely politically incorrect. If you look at the first about 20, 30 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you see these nations that have come against Israel, whether physically or in their thoughts or in their words, in their approach to Israel. And the book starts, the book of Ezekiel starts with God saying, Israel, you have messed up. You're under idolatry, like some pretty serious stuff that you are not doing right. And so you would naturally think that the, the, the judgment is due, right? These people are not righteous, so judgment is due to them. And then you have 20 chapters of all these nations who have come against Israel, even in their sin, and God one by one judges them for coming against his people. One by one, he, he says I'm, to so many of them, they didn't even actually do anything. I think it might be, might be Edom or Moab, Moab. I can't remember which one it was, but it talks about how because you cherished perpetual enmity, you loved to hate them, I'm literally going to destroy you as a nation. It's not like you did anything, you, but your, 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 your heart position towards the things that I love were negative. This is going to result in the destruction of you as a people. Again, this is super politically incorrect. I'm not saying you have to champion everything that any Jewish person does or the nation of Israel does. I am saying be very careful in your stance when you come against them, whether in thought, in word, in deed, because the scriptures are full of examples that, of nations that did that. And because these people are precious to God, he didn't stand by idly by. That doesn't mean embracing everything, but it does mean being very careful in how you pray, how you evangelize. The stance that you take. And again, yeah. God is not a biblically correct God, but this is what it says. You mean, you mean he's not a politically correct God? He's a, a politically correct God. <laughs> he's, bibli he's biblically correct. That took quite the uh, twist. I'll, 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 add, I'll add one uh, small thing here, just in terms of national versus personal responsibility. You know, I, I can't give an exact answer on how God's going to judge the world, unfortunately. But um, we can look at two examples I, I can see. One is Daniel. Uh, chapter 9, we see that God has punished Israel as a people, because as a people, we did not keep um, uh, the, our covenant with him. And I don't know what you mean by Siri doesn't know what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we see Daniel, though, even though uh, he, you know, he understands as a nation, the, the nation's being held accountable for what they did and didn't do. Personally, he's taking responsibility and interceding on behalf of the nation. Even at the time when the exile had come to an end, at the end of the 70 years, he is in uh, Babylon and he's praying and he's interceding and he's he's standing in the gap for uh, the nation. So I think that, that th there is national accountability and there's also personal responsibility and our ability to intercede. And then the other thing I want to just look at is in Genesis, you know, when you, when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah and you see that God was judging, was had, had set his heart and intended to judge Sodom and Gomorrah based on as as cities, as a as a group, as a collective, their disobedience and the wickedness that was inside of them. Uh, you see Abraham uh, coming before God saying, if there are 50 righteous people, would you spare the city? If there if there are 40, if 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 there were just 10, 10 righteous people. And so we see that even if it might feel like you're, you're listening to this and you're in a country where you're like, my government is not anything close to God fearing or it is very pagan or I'm, I'm the minority in my country. We can see that God pays attention saying if there were just 10 righteous in that city, he agrees he would have 
we've not judged a Sodom and Gomorrah. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that that is encur- an encouragement for us that uh, the, the, the prayers of the righteous prevail mu- much, uh, that, that even when, uh, there's so many examples we can talk about with Elijah and others, when, when, when we feel like we're alone, God says, I preserve the remnant and, and the, the prayers of the righteous matter. So I would just say, no matter what your political government uh, is saying, you have the ability to pray and intercede and to live righteously in and of yourself. And that that is like um, we're being salt to the world when we do that. Yeah, I, I mean, we can give an example for us personally. Um, there, we had votes in England where the government was taking a stance that we believe wasn't biblically correct. And so we went, we met with our local member of parliament and talked to him about it and then uh, voted accordingly um, and so we took a personal responsibility in the midst of a national decision. Um, and so I encourage people listening to think about it, you know, even if you may think that on a national level, there's not much you can do, well, there's personal responsibility. There are things that you can do as an individual. And he actually watched the documentary you were in uh, and Michael just at the sideline yeah. and Amazing. gave us feedback and said we could quote him. You know, um, we have been in nations, and I won't, I'm not going to name them on here, um, where we have sat in fields with a few believers who have been in prison and horribly persecuted for standing by Israel. We have been in nations where they can lose their citizenship for standing by Israel. And, and it is a big wake-up call to anybody in the West who is listening that there is a price to be paid for this. And, you know, that phrase, silent no more, actually means get up, act, stand up and do something. And so I think what you're saying, David, is a very, very relevant challenge today. And increasingly, Mm. as we see the rise of anti-Semitism and everything across the world. So, you know, this isn't just an inverted commas a biblical exhortation that we can sit and say amen it really is a wake-up call i think to us right across the world and and for those who are listening and i know there are some listening who are in those nations who have paid that price and who are paying that price even to listen to this podcast they will be paying a price i just want to say we need to pray for them uh, and i honor them and i i am grateful For those not hearing anything, there are some tears being shed. <laughs> I'm grateful to have sat with them in those moments and, you know, to pray that we would be faithful, not for the Jewish people, but for Jesus, for Yeshua, for God, because it is the apple of his eye that we touch. So do yeah. carry on while I compose myself. Yeah, yeah I think that's well, so good, that, what you're saying. Did you want to say something, Michael? No, no, I... I think that's so good, Daphne. I'm just thinking about, you know, what you're saying is exactly, you know, right. It's funny because right before Yeshua has that amazing sermon in Matthew 24 and 25, this is where he's weeping over the people. He's weeping over the unbelief. And I think that's the, the heart that is going to be the most powerful is one that's, you know, there's this, there's this really beautiful verse in Isaiah, I think it's 63, where it talks about God seeing the suffering of his people. And in Hebrew it says, Bechol tzaratam lotzal. In all of their, in all of their suffering and all of their sorrows, it got, it was unto God a sorrow as well. When he saw the pain that his people were experiencing, he was pained by it. And I think that's exactly the, 
the heart that these people are willing to go through severe persecution to be able to stand with God. And that's not overlooked. And there's riches in heaven for aligning with God's heart in any way that they can. So I'm, I resonate with what you're feeling, Daphne. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, as you go, David, you said, you know, we're looking at Matthew 25 and 24 obviously is about um, the end times as well. But just that heart posture of Jesus in Matthew 23, I, I remember that was the thing for me that really started this journey of me even moving to Israel was, was hearing for the first time. I, I read the Bible, growing up in the church, had never seen this so clearly, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And in the recorded scriptures, we only see three times where Jesus actually wept. Uh, once was over Lazarus and Lazarus' death. Once was in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, before his death. And once over uh, Jerusalem, and over the people in Jerusalem. And we've seen, uh, I, I, I'm going to quote my friend Scott Volk, who I know has shared before. Uh, but we, we've seen both Lazarus and Jesus experience resurrection. And we're believing for the same for Jerusalem. And then, so just going to Matthew 23, when Jesus says, you know, woe to you, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often would I have wanted to gather you as a, as a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he says these words that um, I, I just think are staggering. And that this was, this is a wake up call to me where he, he's speaking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, he says, behold, uh, you will not see me again until you say, uh, blessed are you is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Baruch Habba Hashem Adonai. And just that Jesus restricts and limits his return to this earth, his return to the Mount of Olives, saying that there's going to be Jewish religious leaders, one, in Jerusalem, and two, they are going to say, Baruch Haba, welcome. Even still in modern Hebrew, we say, Baruch Habaim, you know, welcome. Blessed are those who come when you come into a home. And so the idea of blessed is the one who comes is just saying, welcome you who come in the name of the Lord. And that that's so much of why we do um, what we do with FIRM. That's so much of why we have a belief in, hey, let's invest in the believing body in the land, not just because we want to see Jesus come back, but because this is what's on his heart. He, he, this, he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, how often would I want to gather you uh, under my wings? And that's the, that's the heart that we have. We're seeing the return of the Jewish people to the land, and we want to see a day where there is this not just individual but national um, repentance and an acceptance of him as Messiah. And this is not just something we see in the New Testament. Uh, it's also something in the Old Testament. David, I'd love for you to bring us uh, to Zechariah 12 and just see the parallel uh, here. Mm. And, oh, and sure. Before you do that, um, I know for us, when we travel and we speak around the world and we talk about the fulfilling of the Great Commission, and you hear people talking about the fulfilling of the Great Commission and the cry going out from the nations, but you don't hear people talking about what you just shared, Michael, about that cry from within Israel for his return. Mm. And so we yeah. like to say to people, can you imagine this cry going out from the nations, joining with the voices of the people from Israel crying out for his return? Um, yeah. And yeah, so... It, yeah. Back to you, David. <laughs> no, I th Andrew, that's that's so good. And even as we've been talking this whole time, I, I keep going back in my head to the the parable of the prodigal son. And, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations of, of what exactly it's talking about. And are these specifically referencing, obviously, the father is, is God himself. But just that 
the joy that ends up being felt by the father when he sees this precious child of his who has left and whether that's the Jewish people or something else. I think it's, it's that, like you were saying, Michael and Andrew, that's the same heart and it's, it's of joy. It's not of, it's not a frustration. It's not of, you know, disappointment. It's of, I'm so happy. I'm so happy you're back. I want to celebrate the fact that you've come back. And I think that's, that's the heart that is important to have one of really brokenness to see this this relationship be mended between God and his people mm. but like you were saying Michael yeah there's there's that there's so many there's so many prophecies that talk about Yeshua's return what's so fascinating is again it seems to be a, an often overlooked aspect of prophecies that talk about Yeshua's return is how often they're intertwined with the return of his people if you look at Isaiah 11 talking about um, God raising up this, this uh, person who's going to judge the world, but he's going to bring his people back from the nations. So many of the second coming prophecies are right adjacent to and, and intertwined with the return of Israel as a people. I love your mug, Andrew, by the way. I love the aroma mug that you're representing there. It's I exciting. can't have the real thing. So this is as close as I can get. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I love it. Um, but yeah, so this, there's a, uh, in Zechariah 12, there's another passage. Again, it's again, if you look at the context a lot of times people focus on verse 10, which is a really important verse. The context of Zechariah 12 is, again, God coming back, blessing his people, even though people are coming against them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to give them strength. They're going to fight on my behalf. Again, very politically incorrect. But it culminates in Zechariah 12 with, again, the people of Israel dwelling in Jerusalem, dwelling in their land. And God says, I'm going to pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, on the house of David, the spirit of grace and supplication. They're going to look on me finally, who they pierced. They're going to mourn for him as one mourns for uh, over a, a only child and weep bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn. And again, it's such a famous passage about this moment where the people of Israel acknowledge their Messiah, the one that they miss. I think I think Isaiah fifty three, very very famous passage. I think is basically an entire chapter prophesying the exact moment where the people of Israel acknowledge, oh, oh, the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Oh, we esteemed him not. We didn't, we didn't get it. We're getting it now. And there's this national revival in the context of God bringing these people back and Yeshua's return and them looking upon him, everything that you were saying, Michael, about Matthew 23, and them saying, oh gosh, we, we finally get it. Blessed is this one who came. Who, we can, today we say, no, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's almost like blessed is he, the one who came in the name of the Lord. He came, yeah. he didn't get it, but now we're getting it. And there's this national mourning, all that ties into Romans 11, where it talks about all Israel will be saved in this moment, in their land, receiving the spirit of God, grace and supplication to acknowledge what they missed. And God's saying, now I'm going to, now I'm going to fill you with my spirit, Ezekiel 37. I've brought you back to the land. I'm going to now breathe upon you and fill you with my Holy Spirit. And you're going to be a mighty tool in my hands for the culmination of human history. But it's in the context of Israel coming home, the fulfillment of Genesis 12. This is their land. And I'm going to bless the world through them in their land. And it's in their land that I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them. I know so many people, I've talked to a lot of different people who've said, you know, is the Jewish people coming back, you know, in 1948 and over the the centuries, is this a fulfillment or is he going to scatter them again? I'm like, this is an unprecedented thing in human history for a nation to be exiled from their land numerous times and to consistently come back. And this being the place, it has to be here 
for God to do this thing. It's, I mean, it's exciting. It's, I mean, it's, it's crazy unprecedented and super exciting for anyone who knows anything about biblical prophecy. Mm. It, it is incredible. I mean, um, Wayne Hillston did one on why the battle uh, did a podcast for us on why the battle over Jerusalem and a lot of what you're saying actually dovetails with that is no wonder that there is a battle over the Jerusalem no wonder there is a battle over the land I mean it 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 must be because um, we also, this is all linking in, we also just had David Slacker talking about his new book called The Nation's Rage. And the nations, as they see this happening, will rage. And, um, but it's time. It, it is really, really time. I mean, you know, I have, like I just said earlier, I, I, I do not know a time and I wasn't looking for the return of Jesus. I mean... It's just been in my family's DNA, and you haven't either, have you? Yeah. Um, but I, re- I really feel like, for the first time ever, I'm standing on Mount Carmel, and I see the cloud of his return. And and I I can't say that before, and, and it is time to lift up your heads, I think, our redemption is drawing nigh. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you honestly, Daphne, from, pers- from numerous personal experience, when this is the message that is shared by, I would say, I would say predominantly by Gentiles to Jewish people, it's for thousands of years, this is not the message. You know, it's a message mm. of replacement theology. It's a message of, mm. you know, of the past, of being an example of God's wrath. But when we, but when the words that come out of Bible believing people's mouths is, God's plan is to bring you back. It's to bless you. It's that he's already blessed you. It's that he cares so deeply about you that he views the world through this lens. He talks about them as the apple of his eye, as the lens through which he sees the world. That's such a, that's such a heart-provoking position. And I've known so many Jewish believers, many of, the, many of the leaders in the Messianic community in Israel today are people who heard the gospel from Gentiles in the diaspora hearing how much God is a heart for his people, triggering something inside of them to, to return to their Messiah and to come home. And, there, you, know, I, you know, my wife is, um, she's not Jewish. And I always talk about her as my secret weapon because there's, there's this amazing gift that God has given to the nations that he hasn't even given to me as a Jewish person. In Romans 11, he talks about, I, the gospel has gone to you nations so that you can bring it back to the people who I, who I initially brought it to and provoke them to jealousy through your passionate relationship with God. And to see that happen, to see this be the message, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's, to, it talks about there being life from the dead when these things begin to happen. And I'm jealous for all of my Gentile Christian brothers and sisters to have this message when they share with, their, with the Jewish people around them, because I've seen the power that comes with this message of return to your God, because he's going to return to you. I have a little story that's just a microcosm of that. I was in Jerusalem in a taxi and, you know, the taxi drivers are the the ones you chat to and talk to as you go around if you're using taxis. And um, he asked me how many times I'd been and I said back and forth. And he said, wow, you should live here. And I said to him, no, I shouldn't. And, And he said, what do you mean? And I think he thought something anti-Semitic was about to come out of my mouth. You know, he said, what do you mean? I said, this is your land, not mine. 
and he pulled the taxi over. I stopped and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, thank you. Todaraba. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just that moment is like, I know that's only a tiny, a tiny little example of what you just said. But as Gentiles, we do have that um, responsibility and privilege, would I say. But I would say, we have to remember, we are Gentiles. <laughs> and I'm thinking of writing a book called, I'm a Gentile and Proud of It. <laughs> it's well, so funny. My, my, dad, my dad always says that God must really love the Gentiles. He made the world 99% Gentile, so he must really <laughs> love them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I wanted to comment about that. Um, you know, I, I grew up and, and I just want to connect with anyone who's listening to this that maybe, you know, this is this is all really new. Uh, even the idea of maybe maybe you've never been to Israel, the idea of the Jewish people. I mean, it, it, it just where does this kind of come from? There's a lot of information and I want to get past the information and really get to the, the heart of God and just share from my own personal experience. I didn't grow up. I grew up in a church that loved Israel but I didn't grow up with that in my heart. Um, and as I um, was, has been reading through the book of Romans, God, God really gripped me uh, at the beginning of Romans chapter nine. Uh, and, and just to give the context, I mean, we, Romans chapter eight really is partly even the climax of Romans. We're talking about Paul, Paul is talking about how we're adopted as sons and daughters where uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and Messiah. Uh, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. All things work together for good. So he's like on at this peak and pinnacle of Romans eight. And then he gets to Romans chapter nine, verse one, specifically the first five verses. And Paul says, I have this great sorrow and this unceasing never ceasing anguish in my heart. And you just say, what's going on, Paul? You just, you just talked about how we're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes on to say, I wish I was cursed and cut off. You just said we're, we're nothing can separate us. And he says, I, I wish I was cut off. And you're saying, Paul, what is going on? Where is the sorrow coming from? And he says, it's for the sake of my people, those from my own race, according to the flesh, the people of Israel. He said, to, to them belongs the sonship, to them belongs the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the, the worship and the promises. And from their uh, bloodline comes the Messiah. And I remember reading that and saying, God, I want to be like Paul in so many ways. And yet I don't share the affections. I don't have the emotions that he's feeling here. I don't, I don't have a great sorrow. I don't have an unceasing anguish. I love you. I love your kingdom. I want to see every tribe, tongue, people, language come to know you. But I, but I can't relate with this. And I just knew that there's something that was wrong in my heart, not something that was wrong in these words that I was reading in the Bible. And so I would just challenge you, pray as I did, God, would you, would you change my heart? Would you help me to see what it is that Paul sees? Would you, would you help me to see uh, what it is that, that Yeshua, you felt? What, what it is that is on your heart so that I'm not just making decisions based on my experience. Maybe you, you know a Jewish person, maybe you don't know a Jewish person, either way. Uh, that, that was the thing that challenged me. We got to get it right at a heart level. And then all the details, all the information, that, that's all important. But at a heart level, we have to understand and see the emotions that Paul felt for um, his people. Absolutely. So David, would you like to sort of bring this to a conclusion, linking Messianic prophecy and 
take us through to maybe into the Valley of Jehoshaphat or beyond? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, who knows what's beyond? Who knows? I'm excited to find out what's beyond, what's beyond it. <laughs> um, I, I, will, I will piggyback for a second on what you said, Michael. Um, uh, it's such, such an important passage. You know, when I studied the book of Romans and I look at the structure of the book, how intentional the structure of the book was, because the first eight chapters, like you said, it's all basically depicting the gospel. This is what God has done. He has saved us. All of us are sinful and we fall short of the glory of God, but you can be saved. You know, if you believe you can be saved. And it's this really beautiful story that he lays out in those first eight chapters. And for someone to get to the end of those and say, wow, this sounds really good. This sounds like a good story. I like what you've laid out, but how do I know that I can trust you? How do I know that I can rely on this gospel that you've depict this good news that you've just shared with me? Is there any example that you can give me that lets me know that you're a reliable God to this message I just heard? And he's like, absolutely. Good. Romans 9 through 11. The Jewish people are going to be my calling card, my example to the nations of the kind of faithfulness that you can expect from me if you accept me into your heart. Same way that I will never reject them, I will never break my covenant with them, is the same way I will never do that with you. And so even in, in, I think it's Jeremiah 31, where it says, listen, if, the, if the, the, the heavens and the tide and the constellations and the way the stars move, if all of that changes, that's the time that I will reject my people, meaning never. And so as, as we look at what you were saying, Daphne, about eschatology and the end times, it has to be viewed through that lens of, of a beating heart, a bleeding heart, a weeping heart of these people, because when they come back, Romans 11, there's going to be life from the dead for the whole world when these people embrace the Messiah. And so wherever you go, whatever messianic prophecy you look at, whatever eschatological prophecy you look at, it has to be through that lens. And then it becomes, it doesn't become, you know, a timeline. Where does this exactly fit in the seven-year tribulation? Where does this fit in the rapture? It's like, all of that is very important and it's worth sitting down. You know, Revelation ends with saying, blessed are the people who, who read what it says in this book and, and adhere to what it says. So that's awesome and wonderful. And, but it has to also be viewed through, there's a plan that started back in Genesis that's going to get laid out and it's coming to its culmination and it's going to be great for everybody if, it's, if, if you align yourself with the plan of the person who laid it out. Um, and so that's you know, I want to come to the day where the, the nations that haven't aligned themselves, like Joel 3 and Zechariah 14, where they haven't aligned themselves against Israel, and God judges them and finds them to be righteous and puts them as the sheep at his right and not as the goats on his left. Amen. Well, I just want to throw one thought in. We're called generation to generation, Lador and what we what we have shared today greatly impacts the emerging generation greatly impacts them it impacts them in their schools in their colleges in their homes they are being impacted and so I would throw in at the end go tell the next generation what you've heard today because Mm. we're responsible for that we've been mandated to pass to the next generation and I can't express enough how today's message must get to the next yeah. generation. So, Michael, would you like to to pray, um, as you feel, <laughs> to, yeah. to close out? And, and we're mm. so, so, so yeah. grateful to you taking this mm. time out for the network. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be here. And uh, 
always always riveting and exciting to talk about these things. I think it energizes me. I know David and I are energized talking about these things. So uh, with that, let's let's pray. Abba, we uh, we just come to you today in the midst of uh, a world that is shaking around us, and we thank you for your word that is a light to our feet, um, that is a lamp to our feet, that that guides us, that is a solid rock that we can stand on. Uh, and God, I just thank you that you are a God that's not like us, that you stay the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thank you that you are covenant-keeping God. And Abba, we just thank you for the example that you've given us in, in who you are and how you, uh, what your character is like and, and the way that you've treated our people, the people of Israel, uh, from generation of old to the future generations. We thank you for your faithfulness, even when we haven't um, held up our part of the covenant. God, we, we ask that just for everyone who's listening to this call, uh, to this, uh, call from all around um, the world, that you would just do something in our hearts. God, would you give us hearts like the sons of Issachar, that we would uh, be able to know the times and the seasons, that we'd be able to comprehend your word, that even as you said to Daniel, that in the end times, revelation will increase. God, we ask that we would be like those uh, that increase in the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord, that we would not be uh, tossed to and fro, that we would not um, succumb to every um, everything we hear on the news, uh, that we would be grounded and steadfast in you. God, for those of us who were challenged by some of the, the, the scriptures that we went through today, I just ask that we would have hearts to go and search them, um, that you would speak to us, that you would confirm uh, your word to us, and that we would be those that are like the sheep uh, in that picture parable in Matthew uh, 25, that we would be those who love uh, the least of uh, these your brothers, um, the people of Israel. And you just show us each how we can do that, how we can be a part of that wherever we are in the world. Um, would you help us with that? We love you, Lord. We're so grateful for our time together. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Michael, David, thank you both so, so much. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Our Always joy. a pleasure. It was wonderful to sit and talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If it inspired you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.